Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Or... So opined Leo. Leo was L.P. Hartley's complex creation, whose time acting as a go-between shattered him. Much like Leo in the foreign country of the past, I looked innocent. Things are rarely as they appear, though. The rules both Leo and I followed ensured that uncovering the truth would be excruciating. For him, it rippled across the rest of his life, in ways that he couldn't trust others. It's a really good novel, by the way, The Go-Between. I highly recommend it, and the Kindle version's pretty good. For me, though, the past has rippled in a different way. Folding and unfolding, showing me things that sometimes I'd prefer not to see. And it may be a kind of innocence to think that you know all there is to know and that you have simple answers for complex questions. But mostly, I think that most of what we, you and I, the rest of the world perhaps, think of as innocence is just a way to gloss over our own privilege and ignorance, which is really just another psychic way to stay asleep to reality. So today, in our second episode of our apocalyptic season, The Innocence, You and I are going to explore what it means to shed the veil of not knowing and begin to rouse from our long sleep of ignorance. I'm listening intently, writing as quickly as I can, filled, feeling this utter delight of being in a real classroom. A real live classroom with real people in the flesh sitting next to me. So excited to engage in learning, not caring really as much as about what we actually would be learning, just the fact that we would be doing it. I sat about in the middle of the classroom, my new college bound wire, I guess not college bound, college ruled, right? Wire bound notebook, and I'm writing in this blue ink pen as quickly as I can. The history professor, Dr. Kropowskis, is speaking, and as I'm writing furiously, trying to take down each and every word he speaks, I'm mostly keeping pace with him, at least as much as possible, and I started, I think, probably to learn some form of shorthand in those initial moments of college. And I'm writing, and I I am listening, but I'm not sure that I'm fully taking in everything he's saying. So overwhelmed, I think, with joy just to be there. And that that twinge of nervousness of, can I actually keep up? Until 
until he says something that has my internal system collide painfully with reality, bringing me so keenly in that here and now I can still feel it on the edges of my memory, on the corridors of my heart. And he said, In prehistory, we begin by examining the Stone Age, including the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. My heart, my heart stuttered to a halt even while my hand continued writing, and everything in me screamed, Stop it. Stop it right now. This can't be happening. What is going on? Class was the only place I felt good in, particularly those first few months of college. And in that first week of college, I felt stunningly aware of my awkwardness. I didn't know how to talk to others, or even to engage in a way that didn't seem to put a gigantic sign above my head that screamed, Outsider. Orientation was tough. I'll tell you sometime of how I planted myself down at a table with a whole host of football players, and somehow truly, honestly believed that I would create deep and abiding relationships with them. For your context, I still don't know what the fuck a first down is or how anyone ever tells if someone is offsides. Also, I'm a born and bred Patriots fan. I'm not sure which set of facts makes me more appalling to football fans, but I'm pretty clear that they do. And so when classes finally began and we didn't have to keep doing these, I don't know, get to know you weird activities and mixers that felt strange, I just, my entire internal system breathed in relief. I could do this. I could do class. Probably. My brain had been my best ally, and also frequently my worst enemy, but I wasn't focusing on that then. My intelligence had gotten me through many things, even if I didn't always conceptualize it that way. And really, actually, class had been going relatively well. My English class was focused on early American literature, which, as it turns out, contained quite a lot of Puritan sermons and poems, notably Michael Wigglesworth's Day of Doom, which felt familiar and safe, if not always the teensiest bit terrifying to me. I do not recommend that you read that. The freshman seminar was my first exposure to team-building activities, which were strange and often socially uncomfortable, but at least there was the relief in the assigned reading, Tuesdays with Maury. And as an aside, I know Mitch's books are roundly mocked, but I still think a lot, a decade and a half later, about Maury's mantra that we need to love each other or die. Intro to IT was easy, and I'm still rocking my PowerPoint skills many years later. And while I haven't hadn't yet, at least in the telling of this story, I hadn't yet started intro to accounting, that seemed like it would be a total cakewalk. I'm really good at balancing things. I hadn't expected, actually, that intro to world history would be hard. I've always been really good at stories and all the details that go along with them. But that was before prehistory entered in. The late summer of the beginning of freshman year, I still was somewhere between admitting that I wasn't a fundamentalist anymore 
and actually becoming something entirely different than how I had always expected I would be. All that to say, I was still firmly entrenched in fundamentalist thought, and no other alternative, at least not yet. Coming back to that classroom, it's important too for you to understand that the age of the earth is a strange linchpin when it comes to fundamentalist ideology. One of the five fundamentals, which are the core tenets of fundamentalism, and if they are the core tenets, then this is like the center of the core, if that's even a thing. And that core, the center of the core, is this acknowledgement that the Bible, as the word of God, is completely inerrant and thus infallible, which translates into reading the Bible literally, or so they claim. I still maintain that no one can or does read anything completely literally. Language itself is a metaphor. Never mind the myriad of ways we use metaphor in how we speak. To pretend to read the Bible or the Constitution, or really even the news, literally, requires any number of clever maneuvers to maintain that illusion. Back to the point, though. If you read the Bible literally, you need to accept that God created all that exists in six days. He took the seventh off. To bask in his eternal glory or get super drunk. Only history or the Deuteronomist, which I never can say. We just called him DTR in the classes I've taken in Div School. Only they could tell us the truth. If Earth and all that it contains was created in six days, then the Earth was much, much younger than the scientists liked to argue. In fact, we had calculated it to be approximately 6,000 years, give or take a handful of decades. Because humans were created on the sixth day, and while that is later than anything else, and really everything else, it still was only a handful of days. Certainly not enough time for dinosaurs to live and become extinct, creating some meaningful fossils along the way. And certainly not enough time, and you'd think it would have been mentioned, for some kind of pre-human to have existed, like the ones that Dr. Kropowski had just mentioned in that perfectly distilled moment in time. And the hum of my heartbeat began to speed up, step by step by step, until it was near on racing, the chant in my head fueled by some kind of fearful, twisted empathy. I knew then, with the certainty of the naive, that Dr. Kapowski was destined for hell, if I didn't intervene. Back then I knew for certain that you, I, all of us, we were on a collision course with hell, like a runaway train in one of those old silent movies that were popular when Billy Sunday was. Christ was the railway switch, providing an alternative path for anyone willing to sell him their soul and forsake the world for heaven. Really, that would have been a hard sell for anyone. But he did die to make it happen, so it seemed the least that we could do. I lingered after class, slowly packing away my textbook, my pen, and that notebook. Wishing, and I could still feel it, Wishing I could pack away my impulse to do what I was about to do next. Shuffled to the front of the class, and very meekly, definitely softly, said, Excuse me? Excuse me, Dr. Kapowski? I wanted to ask. And now all my words came out in an amorphous, rapid blob 
if you've ever accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. He turned to me, and guys, he withered me with eyes hidden behind square wire-framed glasses. I beg your pardon? Miss Fred, Fredette, what did you say? I took in a deep breath. I summoned all my courage, and I replied, Dr. Kapowski, I-, I was just asking if you'd ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, because, um, because, um, you know the prehistory, and I, it's just that I don't want you to go to hell. Dr. Kapowski, I should mention, had an immensely dry sense of humor and was bald both follically and relationally. He was a Chicago Catholic by way of Lithuania, and he tolerated absolutely no bullshit. I say that so you know that the second look he gave me then really did, literally, internally, annihilate me. Miss Verdette, I'm a Catholic, though I hardly think that's any of your business. Now, is that all? I nodded quickly. Of course, of course. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Dr. Kapeski, for the class and and for everything. I'll I'll see you on Wednesday. And thus I quickly walked out of the classroom and then the building, and my speed increased the closer I got to my dorm, tears starting to drip just outside the building, where the scent of menthols always lingered. Until finally I reached my room where I promptly burst into tears and a longing to go back home, back to what I had been so desperate to escape. All these years later, menthols still remind me of spiritual awakening. Innocence is complicated. The dictionary has plenty of definitions, none of which seem to explain my own experience of innocence. Or maybe they do and I just don't want to fit into the box. They say that innocence, the state of being unsullied by sin or moral wrong, lacking a knowledge of evil, But that doesn't fit. I've always been aware of evil, first in myself and and in others too. And I was raised with the belief, and not just the belief, but the, the seemingly knowledge, core knowledge, that I was never unsullied by sin, that I entered into sin with my first breath, maybe even before that, maybe while I was still in the womb. Sin marked me. So that, that, couldn't be, because I I would have never been innocent then. The next definition poses that innocence is the quality of innocent naivete, artlessness, lack of sophistication or worldliness. And maybe this is closer, but this definition has the connotation of likability, of sweetness. And really, I don't think suggesting that others are going directly to hell is all that endearing when it comes down to it. I dare you to disagree with me. I know that I appear sweet. I know that I appear kind. But maybe that's all just illusion. Maybe that is a defense that I have learned to engage in the world to get my needs met in a roundabout, not just a roundabout, but an obscure way. A way that actually causes more pain and suffering doesn't really offer much of reduction. And then there's, I think, the most traditional uh, definition of innocence, a state or condition of being innocent of a specific crime or offense. But what crime? What offense? And who the fuck is in charge of coming up with what is and isn't a crime? 
I, I think about this whenever I hear people talk about how being essentially non-cisgender straight, not being the way, quote, God created you to be, that somehow that is deeply against what the Bible has to say. And it's always baffled me because if you read the Bible literally, okay, that's there. Although true story, there's not really a lot about same-sex female relationships, so you guys might be off the hook. But even if we are talking very specifically about male homosexual relationships, in that same book in Leviticus, we talk about how you should not wear clothing of mixed fiber. So if you wear the cheap polyester suit to proclaim that from the pulpit, you're full of shit. You're a hypocrite of greatest order. Because if you take one part literally, you have to take all of it literally. And I know that you're going to have some barbecue after that sermon, which is also just as much against the rules. And so if we do not examine who creates the rules, who creates the definition for what is and isn't a crime, then how can we ever know who is innocent and who is not? How do we know if the system itself is not a crime? But I am not a lawyer, and I certainly... I brag about reading the Bible, but I've never read the Constitution. Or maybe I have, and I just don't remember it. That definition doesn't work for me either. And I've already shared with you all that I was a fundamentalist once and am not anymore. Mostly, mostly, I don't think I am anymore. But that change didn't happen overnight. Unbecoming your childhood religion, leaving for what all intents and purposes functioned as a cult takes many years of unweaving, like Penelope stalling for time and avoiding being claimed as someone new's property. It's tricky to unbecome, to untangle, because you're unmaking yourself, and you're struck by the urgency to remake yourself into something else, to not just linger in in the unbeing of being. And in my case, there is the added wariness of not wanting to move from one cult of thought to another. And the challenge, for me at least, is how do you not just remake yourself in the mixed-up version of who you used to be? How do you not do that and instead find a way to become something completely new? I keep getting myself off track, though. Back to that moment in time. I told you at the beginning that this was more about the shattering of ignorance rather than the loss of innocence. And what is ignorance? And why do we so often mistake it in ourselves for innocence? And also the reverse, why do we so often see others as ignorant rather than innocent? And now, this is the part that I take the risk. I'm already reading ahead and like kicking myself, you'll see. I'm about to go off script. I'm going to tell you what I really think in this moment. And here we go. As I'm sure as I'm reading these last few lines that I wrote, I'm gulping. I'm thinking to myself, shit, Jen, really, why are you going to torture yourself this way? And I don't totally know. It would have been easier to script this out. It would have been easier to to allow myself the freedom of editing myself long before I ever sat down to record. To wake from innocence, we have to embrace the stumbling growth we hold inside. And so, 
So what is ignorance? Ignorance is a desire not to know. Innocence, I think, is just the not knowing, not having the information to help yourself to expand your world consciousness. I read this really interesting book in preparation for writing all of this stuff and and <laughs> starting a podcast. And I, I've told you guys about Edward Edinger before, but he talks, I don't know if it was in the archetype of the apocalypse or I'm reading this other book about the ego and the archetype, which is not totally the name, but He talks about how the ego is born when we are born. And there is desire of the self, which is this kind of like mystical, gigantic, divine spark something. I don't really totally understand what the youngians mean by it, but there's something mystical and lovely about it. And so the self is completely undifferentiated. It is a part and connected to all there has ever been. But it's overwhelming, particularly for the baby little infant mind. And so the infant finds a way to distinguish self from others. And I mean self in a little s there, um, compared to the gigantic self, the, the collective psyche. And so innocence is in the, the capital S self if that makes sense, that when we were united with all, when there was no differentiation, when we were not just the drop in the ocean, but the ocean itself, there is innocence. There's not knowing what it means to be separate, to be apart. But life doesn't let you just stay in the ocean. Not just stay in the ocean, but be the ocean. It demands that you learn to be a drop of water. And that is where I think ignorance starts to show up, is that it longs to go back to that bliss, to that submersion in all there is without ever actually having to know all there is. It's just the being. Ignorance wants to go back to the time before, before most of us can remember. Ignorance wants to pretend it didn't hear what you said. It didn't understand what you meant. It wants to stay in the dark. It's the the fellow members in Plato's cave who are too scared of the shadows to venture out, to understand that it's light, it's knowledge, it's wisdom, it's awareness, it's awakeness that awaits you if you're able to get over your fear of not knowing in some sort of mysterious way. And so, ignorance, we often mistake it in ourselves for innocence because it's easier to fool ourselves in some ways that we already know all there is to know, that we are all there is to be. It's kind of a really beautiful, common, grandiose delusion. And so, I I also think the reverse is true, that Ignorance is something that we abhor. We don't want to be ignorant because it really shows our own limits. It illustrates that we are much smaller than we wish we were. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons why we don't want to be small. We want to be able to be protected. We want to stay safe. We want to feel like things are going to be okay. And I don't think it really matters if you are a MAGA-wearing 
Trump supporter or somebody who's still mourning that Bernie withdrew from the race. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Hindu. It doesn't matter if you are not at all religious or not at all in the binary. I think we all want to feel safe. It's this core basic need. But the ignorance comes when we start to believe that safety is more than it actually is. That safety is more than just a roof over your head, but it's the right to be you and to have everyone else be like you. And that's it's just not really doable, you guys. I think a lot about this when I sit with clients and, and when I sit as a client in the therapy seat. And I really need to buy, I have a second chair for my office, my home office, so I can have a therapy seat and a therapist seat, even though they're the same chair. But when I sit with clients, I think about how so many of them imagine I have secret knowledge, that I will somehow see something, know something, understand the flags, red, green, and yellow, that will will harm them or embrace them. And I can't. I often tell them, well, I don't know. I'm just following this with you. I'm just watching this with you. I'm just growing with you. And I feel a lot of empathy for them because I demand of my own therapist to tell me the secrets of my psyche, to explain to me the mysteries of my heart, because I I don't want to figure it out myself sometimes. That is the danger of therapy, is thinking you can outsource your own inner growth. Which you can't, by the way. It's legitimately not possible. And I I don't know if I'm rambling or not. See, this is why I didn't want to go off script, you guys. Because (sighs) ignorance, innocence, they look so similar. But they're not. And we want to believe that others are ignorant. So we can continue to claim our own innocence particularly when they disagree with us, particularly when they're on the other side of whatever polarity we are currently occupying. Ultimately, though, I think we really need to offer more grace, both to ourselves and to them, and maybe to find some other word to go with these two that would mean something like being in the middle of appreciating that I know in the grand scheme of things very little and that I in the grand schemes of things am really little. The impact I can have is small and the impact I can have is great. If I can work on integrating the parts within myself, if I can work to understand what is happening inside and how it plays out externally, not just in close relationships, but with uh, my favorite Trader Joe cashier or my favorite mailman or male woman or male person is probably the most correct term. If I can work on that, I can start to have an impact every day in the world in which I live. If I can learn which pronouns to use when, when I can call a person by the name that feels like home to them, when I can shut up and listen and understand the way I have learned to be is not the only way to be. 
and it might not even be the way I wish to be, and that there are other options. I might find not a return to innocence, but a piece of it, a piece where I am neither charging others with crimes or being found convicted of the crime of being me. Maybe I could have gone back in time, and maybe Dr. Grabowski would have asked me, with real curiosity, why I would think he was going to hell. Why prehistory scared me so much. And really, actually, as I'm talking about this right now, imagining why did prehistory scare me so much, beyond just the fundamentals, beyond everything I had been taught, beyond the red herring of thinking everyone was going to hell. Prehistory is a time, in some ways, of innocence, of which we only have archaeology. And even that, I think, is scarce on the ground. We only have fragments of who and what we used to be. Much like infancy. Much like the child, the human, the fetus, whatever we want to call it, in the womb. Prehistory was a kind of innocence, and it, when it came up to what I thought was my innocence, to what I thought was my right, was really just my ignorance. It's hard to dismantle the pieces of you that you have empathy for. It's harder to dismantle the pieces of you of which you are ashamed of. But ultimately, I think, I think innocence, ignorance, whatever we want to call, whatever it is that keeps us from embracing others and being curious about them and ourselves, they're just, they're just the clothes we learn to wear to survive humanity. And if we could find a way to be not just emotionally naked, but something more than that, like psychically, soulfully naked, to be the ultimate kind of vulnerable. I think that's when we might find not a return to innocence, but a return to the greater stuff, the stardust, like Carl Sagan says we're made up of, a return to what we were once upon a time. So that's what I think, at least for today. And it was off script. I, oh, I can feel my own internal squiggles of not wanting to go back to listen, fearful that I'll judge. And I will say, I'm generally only mostly judgmental about me, less so about other people. You've heard what I've had to say, and I'd love for you to share what you think. What is ignorance? And how do you distinguish it from innocence? Where and how do you see each in yourself? You can always drop me a DM on Instagram or send me a message on Facebook Messenger or better yet, send me an email and let me know what you think. I really do genuinely want to know. And I'm going to invite you to make sure you join us next week when we explore what happens when we're presented with uncharted territory and discover the warnings that await us. 
dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As J.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.